Good evening. I'm Greg. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm honored to be here to be able to bring uh, the word to you uh, tonight. Um, I want to start off, uh, I want you to picture something for me as we go into this service, and it's, it's something that we've all experienced, I believe, sometime during our life. Um, I want you to picture that uh, you're, you're, you're near a school, an elementary school, and you're on this hill so that you can see what's happening down there, and the bell rings, and then all of a sudden there are kids in activity and chaos everywhere. They're all over the place. It just looked like a bunch of ants that came on to a picnic. It's a happy day. And there are kid, groups of kids all over the seesaws. There are kids, um, uh, a group of boys getting ready to pick teams for touch football. You've got pockets of kids just talking and hanging out with other kids. You've got a group playing tag. And you're watching all this, okay? And you also notice there's... <laughs> Watching that is two or three adults wishing they were inside sipping coffee. And you're seeing all of this and you're taking it in because you love kids and you love their energy. And you're looking at this, you're kind of getting a panoramic shot of that playground. And then, then you see her. You see her. It's, it's a girl and, and she's all alone and she's leaning up against the school building. She's probably nine or 10 years old, and, and you're trying to figure out what, something doesn't seem quite right, and then, then you can make out that apparently she has under her right arm a, a crutch. And something's wrong is because when she tries to walk, something's not quite right with her, her legs, and she's all alone, and you see her there, but it's as if nobody else sees her at all. She's alone. So very alone. Let's pray. Kind Father, open our eyes to see what you see and move us to be the people you created us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to jump into the text. It's going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to take off. We're looking at Luke uh, chapter 14, and this is what we read. One Sabbath, Jesus went to a meal in the house of a leading Pharisee, and they were keeping a close eye on Jesus. There was a man there in front of Jesus who suffered from dropsy. So Jesus turned and asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remained silent. He, Jesus, took the man, healed him, and dismissed him. And then Jesus said to them, suppose one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well. Are you going to tell me you won't pull him out straight away on the Sabbath day? They had no answer for that. It says in verse one that, the, that they were keeping a close eye on Jesus. Another version says that the Pharisees were watching Jesus like hawks. And there was a reason for that because Jesus had drew a line in the sand. And that line clearly and emphatically placed Jesus on one side of the line and the religious lead on the other. There was this heated battle that was going on. It started early between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's well documented throughout the Gospels. And it grows intensity right up into the crucifixion. And what happens is they would have these dialogues, these debates, and then Jesus, Jesus called them names. He called them the blind leading the blind, phonies, 
religious bullies, whitewashed tombs. Those are not endearing terms. They don't produce warm fuzzies. You're not going to find them in Hallmark cards. Um, and remember that thing when your kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, the Pharisees weren't hurt. They were just ticked. They were angry. In Luke 13, Jesus heals a woman who had been crippled for 18 years. And Jesus heals her on the Sabbath, which flew in the face of rabbinical law. But he healed her 18 years. And he healed her. And it says that one synagogue ruler who witnessed Jesus do this was indignant. And Jesus calls him out on it. Gets up in his grill and simply says, you hypocrite. That is not a good thing for Jesus when it comes to his um, um, approval ratings with the religious circles. Uh, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like him at all. The religious leaders are supposed to be the ones responsible for helping God's people connect with the living God. They're to be serving people, but they're actually serving themselves. It was all about them. And meanwhile, Jesus is reaching out to the marginalized, to those on the periphery of society, to the poor, the sick, and the helpless and the hopeless. And what's happening just really quick is the people are falling in love with Jesus. He actually likes them and cares for them. And that's different for them when it came to the religious leaders in the day. So they started to follow Jesus. And, and that, uh, that didn't make the powers that be very happy. In fact, he quickly became public enemy number one. And for the religious leaders, what this meant is something needed to be done. We got to get this guy, take him down, and then take him out. Now, in Luke 14.1, the text we just read, we find that Jesus is invited to the meal of a prominent Pharisee. This man was a religious leader, a ruler, perhaps the head of a local synagogue. We don't know. But what we do know is that because of his position, he has clout, power, and voice, which means he can get things done. So Jesus is sitting at this table that he was invited to be at. The food's been served. The wine has been poured. The people are engaged in lively conversation. The atmosphere seemed to be festive. And then things go quickly, quiet, and somber. I mean, right now. And all eyes turn and to a man who's standing there. The man appears to come out of nowhere. He is front and center stage. He is in close proximity of G to Jesus. And it says in verse 2, there in front of Jesus was a man suffering from dropsy. Another version says that this man had abnormal swelling of his body. Uh, he had a disease that caused his body to retain large uh, amounts of fluid. The result was that parts of his body had swollen in size. It left his body badly distorted and grotesquely misshapen. So if you're there and there were people there, there were groups of people there, and you're watching this unfold and you see that guy standing there, you, you know something's up. Something's not right. Things are off kilter. Do you remember uh, the Sesame Street song? I use this every once in a while. Uh, not like the others. 
One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell me which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? This man is not like the others. In fact, he's like nobody else in that room. And he does not belong. He is not where he should be. He is most certainly not an invited guest. Now, why would I say that? Three simple and obvious reasons. Number one, he had a disease. The thinking at that time in history was that if you were sick, if you had an infirmity that was contagious or permanent or unpleasant to look at, chances were it's because of something that you did. And you were under the curse of God for some sin, unrepentant, not taken care of in your life, or because of the sins of your parents. At that time, in that culture, a person who was sick with disease was considered impure. They were to keep their distance from healthy, normal people. In fact, when they were out and about, if they were around people, they had to call out their sin or their impurity, their sickness, and then make sure they kept distance from those who were normal. They were to be avoided and shunned. They were not allowed to interact or be near normal folks. Secondly, we know that he would never have been invited to this party. Why do we know that? Because it was believed to be in the company of one who was sick like that guy would make you impure as well. Guilty by way of association. Guilty by proxy, so to speak. Therefore, he would most certainly not have been welcomed at that table. He would not have been welcomed in that home. He, have not been, he would not have been welcomed in the neighborhood in fact, they wouldn't want him in their town. That would hurt property values, you know. But here's the kicker. Once he is healed, he is gone, and things are kind of left weird. Once his purpose for being there is completed, he's dismissed by Jesus, as we'll see in a little bit. He's set on his way. And why? Because there's another thing playing out. You see, this man was a ringer, if you please. He was simply bait, fodder, brought in to entrap Jesus. Now, the event offered a meal, but it wasn't about food. And Jesus was there, but it wasn't about getting to know Jesus or to hear what he might have to say. The event was about getting Jesus. It was about taking him down. It was an orchestrated event. And this guy who appeared before Jesus with this disease, uh, they needed that guy to come and be at the right place at the right time. Just a matter of good staging. Make no mistake about it, the people sitting at this table didn't give a rip about this guy at all. They didn't care about his disease. They didn't care about his hopeless state. They didn't care about his miserable life. They didn't care that he was destined to be alone and die unknown. He was healed, and they still didn't care about him. When I was thinking about that, chances are he's not from town. They probably had to go out and find this guy. And they were brought, he was brought for this moment. And I'm guessing they never even knew his name. A nameless face in the crowd. But here's where I want to go just for a few minutes. I, I, I want to take in 
the human element here. You know, sometimes I don't know about you, but if I read a scripture, it's easy to read the scripture as a story, maybe as a parable. But this is not just a story. It's not just a parable. It's an actual event that occurred. And that's why it's recorded for us. And he's in this house, in this room. The people there are appalled by his appearance. They find him totally disgusting. They don't feel sorry for him. They just find him totally disgusting. And he's standing there and he can feel the hostility. He, he doesn't have to hear the words, they do not want me here. He stinks. You know, well, Greg, that's me. No, he probably reeks. He's not anywhere close to where he's going to be able to bathe because that would be public. They're probably, and I want you to hear this because I want you to understand how offensive this is. They're probably around in that room near him who are trying not to gag. He's amongst the people who are convinced that he's getting exactly what he deserves. He is a sinner. He's unwanted. He's unworthy. He does not belong here. You ever been in a room all by yourself, but you're not all by yourself, but you're the only one in the room? Do you see what I'm saying? They're just people and they do not want you to be there. You ever had that feeling before? He's scared. He feels completely naked, totally exposed, and absolutely judged. In a word, and I want you to grasp this word, please, ashamed. Ashamed. He keeps his head down, makes eye contact with no one. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't know why he's there. There's a conversation taking place out there around him. He doesn't know what it's about or who they are. He doesn't even get this. I want you to think, I, this is, I know this is conjecture, but I believe this is a part of what happens here. Um, he is distracted right now by what? The smell of food. By the smell of unbelievable good food. Chances are he's eaten garbage and scraps and begged here and there, but real food and a real meal, what must, have, what must that have been like for him? He can't help himself, so he raises his head just a little bit because he wants to see this food, and he, wants to do, and he looks at it, he bends and drops it, and he's like, what would that taste like? And he's wondering, what would it be like to have a seat at that table, to converse, to laugh, to do life with others? What would it be like to belong, to fit in, to have a friend, to not be all, all alone? And I imagine that he sees that food and then he wants to see it again because he can't believe it. And he looks up. But when he looks up, this time, he catches the eye of Jesus. And in that moment, he experiences all kinds of emotions, but it is weird for him because what he sensed when his eyes met Jesus's eyes was something that he'd never had. Condemnation, he knew, but that's, this was not condemnation. It was compassion. And now he's starting to figure out, he, he looked at me and he looked at me differently than other people look at me. He looked back at me and he saw me. What was that? What was that feeling? He can't remember the last time he felt compassion or seen 
And he takes another look at Jesus and, and then he realizes, I, I'm accepted. I'm safe. I feel warmth. I feel valued. And Jesus reaches out, touches him, and then at that moment he is healed. And what would, what, and he, Jesus dismisses him, but what must that, what must have that felt like? Well, what did that look like? He had abnormal swelling, and this miracle takes place, and he's, he's healed. Does, does he see it instantaneously? Do the people who are there, the prominent Pharisees, the other religious leaders, the crowd, both hostile and pro-Jesus, did they see that? I think, I think about that all the time. Because there's been times in my life when something happened and I saw it, but I didn't see it. And, and he's clean. He, he's clean. He's given a new life. His world has changed. And he's looking at his body, what just happened. And Jesus sends him out. And then Jesus turns the heat up in the room because something is wrong here. And what's wrong here is there's no celebration of what just occurred. Did, did these people who had an agenda of taking Jesus out, did they even see what transpired when Jesus touched him and he was healed? Did they recognize him? His life had been permanently altered, radically changed. He has a new, fresh body and a second chance at life. They have just seen before their very eyes a miracle of God, a life transformed, and yet they did not see it at all. You know, hatred has this ability to become blind. To become insensitive to others who are not normal or not in your circle. He is healed, and this is the thing that gets me. He is healed, and yet there's still no place for him at the table. There's a Christian movie out there. Everybody should see it. I've got my own copy of it. It's called The Incredibles. And um, I don't know if you remember The Incredibles, but at the end of the movie, uh, the villain is just, he just got sucked up in the plane and there's exploded, so he's gone. And then the mom, who's Elastigirl, like my mom, because she could smack me from anywhere. Um, she's saying, baby, hold on, hold on. You're going to be okay. And she floats to the ground, but the baby looks up. She sees, sees the planes coming. And right, and right at the time when she lands uh, right there in the front yard, uh, invisible girl, whatever he does, the girl with the shield, puts up the shield, and boom, there's this huge explosion, and then the smoke clears away, and the family's okay, but there's one thing that I love about that. The smoke clears, and Mr. Incredible looks over, and the neighborhood kid is on a tricycle looking at all this happening, and he goes, that was totally wicked! Great line. We could use it for this story, totally righteous. But not one person, not one person says, you can sit in my chair. Dude, that was crazy. How, how, tell, how do you feel? That's amazing. 
But those who gathered there, those who invited Jesus to attend, did not come because they wanted to get to know Jesus better or to hear what he had to say. They did invite the diseased man so that they could see the power of God at work in their own eyes. It was all just a setup, a baited trap. And this is the line. I've used it before. These religious leaders, these invited guests, are counting on Jesus being Jesus. Again, the religious leaders had worked so hard to get Jesus to cross the line, to catch him in the argument, to get Jesus to say something or do something, anything, wherein they could dismiss him and his influence and take him out and take him down. They had tried to catch him in a debate, failed. Tried to trip him up on paying taxes to Rome, failed. When they brought a woman who was caught in adultery and pointed out that Jewish law said that she should be stoned, Jesus has a one-liner, a one-liner, shuts them up, failed, and they walked out. They couldn't win a debate. They couldn't confound Jesus with their intellect. They couldn't refute his teaching. They couldn't deny the power of his musicals, or the musicals are great, uh, miracles. (laughs) How in the world are they going to get this guy? And one guy got to thinking, he goes, I got it. I I got it. It's a sure bet. You see, they knew that Jesus was a man of compassion, especially for the helpless, the hopeless, the hurting, and the lost. They knew that Jesus' heart for those who are destitute, left out, marginalized, poor, outcast, those on the periphery of society, those considered riffraff, those who have been bag-tagged as losers, sinners, and trash. Jesus, Jesus can't see that happen without doing something. They knew that Jesus could not help but help people. You could say it this way. Jesus had the inability to do nothing. They knew Jesus would be Jesus, and doing so, he would entice himself by his actions. Jesus will do so, by the way, in the presence of the prominent Pharisee, in front of the other religious leaders gathered there in front of a crowd who would see it happen. And they had him. So they thought. By the way, Jesus wasn't surprised. He wasn't caught off guard. He walked in that home knowing these dudes are just not good people. He went into a hostile crowd. But the thing thing that's amazing to me is his response to the trap and what he did. And this is so profound. I'm gonna ask my friend Pete to come up Because this is what the text says. So taking hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him away. It says taking hold of the man. Do you know what that literally means? Pete's going to show it to you. This is what it means. And I want you to understand, Jesus could have sent him down to the river to wash himself off. Jesus could have spoke the word he'd have been healed. Jesus could have patted him by the back or given him a high five. But what Jesus does is this. And he doesn't let go. Thanks, Pete. You mentioned. He hugged him. He hugged him. He embraced him. He didn't pat him on the butt and say, go. He hugged him. And in doing so, he didn't, he made an exclamation point. Jesus hugged him up, hugged him up close and personal in his diseased state, in his shame, in his loneliness, in his hopelessness, as a person brought, who brought nothing to contribute to society, who brought nothing to the table. 
it's then and there that Jesus embraced them. It hits me, and I thought about this just before I came out. How long had it been since this man with dropsy, had, how long had it been since he'd experienced human touch? To be touched by another human being, to be embraced and to be valued. What must that have been like? This guy had dropsy. At the time in the religious culture, in the social context, it was believed that this specific disease was, was the result of sexual sin. And again, it means that this person got the disease because God was punishing him. They believed this man was getting what he deserved. Aha. They were convinced that this man had crossed a line, that he had reached a point of no return. And because of that, because of that he was considered down for the count, impure, unapproachable, untouchable. And no hope left for him. They believed that this man was unredeemable. They believed, they actually believed that God himself had turned his back on him and those like him. And it's here in this context, in his sinfulness and his shame, the only life that he's known, that Jesus does the unimaginable, the unthinkable, and embraced him. It's an exclamation mark of the value that Jesus says that man has, and he did it in the embrace. So let me take you back to that play playground. That little girl, about nine or 10 years old, on that playground. Her family had just moved from out of town, moved in to a new town and to a new school midstream in the middle of the year. She had a unique physical disability. She was pigeon-toed. Uh, pigeon she she uh, was a preemie. She weighed one pound, 15 ounces when she was born in 1960. They were starting to use a thing called incubators, but they didn't have them down yet. She was put in an incubator, which was an incubator, which also gave her mild cerebral palsy. Her legs were not fully developed. Other kids were merciless. You ever have, see what happens when a sick chicken in a farm yard, if he's sick or wounded, do you remember what they do? They peck that chicken until it dies. There were two words that kids used to taunt and tease this little girl. They called her a cripple and a retard. I find that offensive because that was my little sister. They called her a retard. They said, you're not smart, you're dumb, look the way you walk. And every time we moved, it was hell for my sister. The title of this message is An Advocate, an advocate, advocate for, for, of Hope. An Advocate of Hope. And the advocate has several meanings, but for me, and especially in this message, it's this. It is someone who takes it upon themselves to step in or step up for another who cannot and needs help. And the theme of this message is justice, helping those who can't help themselves, those who have been marginalized and pushed 
to the outside of community. When uh, Ezra and Bill Kuhn and I and Daryl talked about this series weeks ago, uh, Daryl said this, the Lord is very clear, this matter of justice, the Lord is very clear that he cares for people who are vulnerable and at risk and often cares for them through his people. Isaiah 61 says this, of who we should be as people who are advocates and people who uh, believe in justice. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to provide for those who mourn, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. We are to be advocates of hope in a world where hope is not found very often. So here's the question, maybe two of them. Who has been an advocate for you? You ever found yourself in a tough season? Not doing well? Lost your way? Up against the wall? And somebody comes along and embraces you and is there for you, made all the difference. But here's the bigger question. Who can you be an advocate for? Because I'm, I'm, I'm starting to believe that we can get lost in busyness and not see the needs around us. And I want to submit to you, we all should have stories. If we are salt and light in the children of God, we should all have a story where, and not that story we'll wave the flag and say, look at me, but where we step in and step up for those who need a friend. Because I think that's what life is really about. That's what matters. Who's an advocate for you? And who can you be an advocate for? I'm going to close in a minute. <clears throat> and before I do, there's a couple things I, I want to do. And uh, first of all, I made myself a note here. This says, do not forget, Greg, because I do. Next week is kind of a big deal. And I was telling Ezra as he came off and, and he went in the back room. Um, I said, Ezra, it just dawned on me. Easter's next weekend. What a great time to celebrate communion with God's people. It's also a good time to bring a little hope to those maybe who don't have it. Next weekend, we're celebrating the most significant event of all time. In fact, our faith pivots on it. And on the way out of church today, they're gonna be handing or offering you a card just like this one, an event card with details about our Easter services. And the goal is not for you to remember the card, because we kind of expect you're God's people and this is a big day, you'll be here. But for those maybe that you could give the card to, ask them to come to church maybe with you. Maybe a family member, coworker, or a friend. And then that would be a cool thing. That would be being an advocate of hope. So I'm gonna ask you to stand. We're gonna ask the worship team, to, or the, the prayer team to come up here as, as I pray. 
If you'd stand, I'm going to pray over you uh, a verse that I came to several months ago that I love. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, and I'm just going to raise my hand, and I'm going to read these words to you as a blessing. As God's people called to be an advocate of hope. And then this is the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness. May he have mercy on you. And may the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Amen. Go and be an advocate of hope. Have a great weekend.